All right, well, I'm excited to hear Josh preach this morning. Uh, God has put a word on his heart, um, and he's going to be preaching in our series as we're going through the book of Mark, but he's asked Zach to come and read the text this morning, so Zach, come on up. We'll be in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. Any of you want to flip there, follow along. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of what the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensual, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Okay, thanks, Zach, for reading. Good morning. That's a good morning. It's a uh, pleasure to bring God's Word with you this morning, so thank you, Paul, for the opportunity again. Uh, it's always good to hear God's Word and to, to think about it in church. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to false accusations? Have you ever been accused falsely of something you didn't do? I'm sure we all have. I can remember one time as a teenager, 
my friend and I were at a small supermarket, and I guess like most teenagers, we had some pocket money, and we were there to buy you know, sweets and, and junk food. Just minding our own business, and all of a sudden, the security guard comes up to us and says, I saw that. If you put it back now, I won't say anything. And we look at each other as he walks away and said, saw what? What did you see? And my friend, who is very hot-headed and very quick to speak, quickly runs over to the security guard and yet makes a big fuss, saying, how dare you accuse us of stealing? We weren't stealing. And then the security guard reluctantly you know, apologized and said, sorry, you know, we've had a lot of stealing going on, so he's on high alert. Um, but he thought we were stealing. And um, yeah, we, we didn't feel too good walking out of that situation. Um, it's not good feeling when you're accused of something you didn't do, is it? And Jesus was accused many times of being something that he wasn't uh, throughout the Gospels. And in our passage today, it's Jesus' disciples, actually, that are being targeted for uh, something they didn't do. They're putting on trial for not keeping the law, apparently. But it's clear that the accusers were actually just trying to discredit Jesus himself as they criticize his disciples. So if we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark, um, as Paul's been preaching, we've kind of seen that up until now, the, the pace of Mark has been very swift, hasn't it? Mark has a very kind of rapid pace, and oftentimes he'll say things happen immediately, and there's this kind of constant action. And it's almost like Mark is kind of pulling together different clips and, and snippets and highlights of Jesus' teaching and ministry, and putting them together um, as a kind of representative of all that Jesus did. It's only that we get to chapter 7 that we kind of slow down a little bit and take a break um, from this rapid flow of events as Jesus deals with some opposition that he's facing in his ministry. And one of the main themes of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus giving people this invitation to follow him, to, to be disciples under him and to take on this um, invitation that he's making people. And as the kind of plot unfolds, we'll see that some, you know, accept this invitation and go along Jesus with Jesus and others obviously reject it, don't they? They, uh, they are in opposition to him. And clearly this episode is about a group of people that are in, in opposition to Jesus' interpretation of ministry, and they are very uh, suspicious of him. They think he's, he's in uh, for trouble. And so uh, that's where we join the, the conversation today. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll open our Bibles. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that it brings life and power and truth. And we pray as we open it today that you would be speaking to us by your Holy Spirit, uh, even as we consider um, difficult, weighty things like the law and how you would have us live, Lord. We pray that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. Um, so we ask that you would guide us through here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So yeah, if you have a Bible, I welcome you to join with us to see where we're going. Um, so those first five verses. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. He's been healing people. He's been sending out his disciples, hasn't he, to continue on his ministry. He's just fed the 5,000 people that came out to listen to him. He was walking on water, and now these religious leaders are coming down to listen to him uh, from Jerusalem to find out who this man is, to get some answers about what this kind of commotion has been going on. What's funny is they didn't want answers to any of those things. You know, if it was me, I'd want to you know, how did you feed those 5,000 people? How did you walk on water? How did you do all these miraculous things? Instead, their big complaint was about his disciples' hygiene levels. Kind of a, a bizarre angle to attack, isn't it? They'd come all the way from Jerusalem, which is a long way to where Jesus was, to get some dirt, and this is where you know, this is what they come up with. This is the best they could do. This is gonna how this is how they're gonna discredit Jesus 
as being a false teacher. You know, if they were to write their enraged email back to headquarters in Jerusalem, you know, the title would probably read, Jesus can't be trusted. His disciples are filthy. We can't trust him. But the, the Pharisees and the scribes were offended by this. They were offended that Jesus' disciples were eating with unwashed hands. What a, what a tragedy. They had neglected this task, they said, with other you know, traditional aspects of washing, like washing of the cups and the pots and so on. And in doing so, they were breaking the tradition of the elders. So if the disciples weren't actually breaking the very law of God that God had given Moses to Israel, why were the Pharisees so offended by this? Why were they so enraged by their disciples' actions? It wasn't just that their hands were, were dirty. Instead, it was a practice that they had put in place that had been a ritual cleansing act and removed the ceremonial impurity that people had when they were in the marketplace and other common places before they would eat. And so this kind of practice had become commonplace by Jesus' day. Uh, lots of, everyone did it. That's just what you were expected to do. And the Pharisees were so earnestly trying to keep the law of Moses that they had put in place these very elaborate parameters around the law to make sure that no one uh, would break the law. And they call these things the, the oral law. And this would go on to be called the, the Mishnah, which is kind of these additional um, guidelines with how to live. And they would prevent people from actually going and breaking the law itself. So in theory, you could say this is actually a, a noble idea. It was a good idea because uh, the religious leaders cared about holiness and they didn't want people to break the law, so they tried all their you know, very best to try and uh, put these additional barriers in front of it so they didn't break the law. I think we are often too quick to, you know, to criticize the Pharisees, aren't we? They're always the bad guys in the story. Um, but in this case, you can kind of commend them for at least trying to maintain God's holiness. That's what they cared about. Um, but the reality is when you look at their attitude, you could see actually it wasn't sincere, was it? In verse 5, when they inquired why Jesus wasn't observing these commands, they wanted to test him. They wanted to see, okay, is this Jesus an orthodox teacher in, in our own eyes? They have become blinded by the compulsion to keep this additional law they'd set up and the observances around it down to just the smallest minutiae. You know, we've often talked about how silly come these laws end up being. And they couldn't see the forest for the trees, could they? They were so lost by that, they had become simply uh, rule worshippers rather than interested in any holiness. So like I said, it's easy to critique these people's, the Pharisees' uh, pride and false sense of superiority. But we are also especially cautious about keeping uh, legalism and, and you know, pharisaical attitudes out of the church. But I wonder, you know, even 2,000 years later, are we really so different from them sometimes? We actually have uh, two major issues going on in the church right now. And while they seem like opposites, they actually end up producing the same result. So we have uh, the legalists. This is what I think we're often you know, raising, raising um, warning against and, and not being legalistic. And we're perhaps very familiar with this group. These are the people that will set additional preferences and expectations on people that allow themselves to feel morally superior to other people. And we can fall into this trap so easily, can't we? When we try to you know, settle little scores and gain little points over other people and uh, try to... You know, say, well, we behave in this certain area of life, or we have this conviction that kind of just brings us up a few pegs um, between other people. And we kind of uh, reassure ourselves that we are 
you know, the real Christians because we do this and they, they don't do that. Um, and we, we bind people's consciences where God has left them unbound, where there isn't actually law to, to follow. And then we have the antinomians. So this is the idea that we are saved by grace, but that after that we're really just at liberty to live you know, any way we please. We can continue living the life we want because we've already been forgiven. Let's just carry on living um, however we choose. And that cheapens the cost of grace, doesn't it? I think most of us you know, would, would object to this very strong view of, uh, of living as we please, but there is a more subtle way that this kind of plays itself out in the church. There is sometimes the idea that, that failure is actually pleasing to God because it shows us uh, our dependency upon him. It shows us, you know, we, we always fail, but there's always grace for us with God. Um, and so messing up and immediately giving ourselves grace uh, without you know, really trying to work on some of the, the ways we're failing, failing and uh, kind of just accepting, well, this is me, and I'm going to kind of wallow in my, my state of sin, but Jesus has given me grace, you know, I can continue living uh, in his grace. That highlights a false understanding of the gospel. You know, failure is not a virtue. We are not always defeated before we go on to try to live up to God's standards. Rather, in Christ, specifically when we are in Christ, we genuinely do have the ability, by the Spirit's power, to live godly lives, to live lives that are pleasing to God in relationship with the Trinity and with other people. So we have these two, two kind of camps, don't we? We have the legalists, like the Pharisees, and then we have the antinomians. And both are, are lawless people. One makes the law null and void by adding additional unnecessary rules to it and kind of you know, discredits the law's sufficiency. The other view makes the law null and void by seeing it as irrelevant or, or meaningless or just impossible to aim towards. So we find ourselves in between these two pitfalls, and the, you know, the narrow way is often what we need to understand to truly um, know what it means to walk and live in holiness. And that's not easy to do sometimes. So how did Jesus respond? In verses 6 to 13, we move on to look at how he responded to these accusations. And his reaction is actually pretty hostile, isn't it? It's pretty provocative. It's a, it's a firm and scathing um, you know, remark that's designed to offend the Pharisees and the scribes. And does it, seem, does it seem appropriate for Jesus to act this way? What was, he, what was he trying to do here? What was he trying to um, communicate here? Well, I think part of the reason why Jesus' uh, reply was so strong was because these people were leaders. These people uh, were in charge of, of the Jews and leading them astray. And they were you know, making a mockery of God's law, basically. Um, and you know, like James says, not many of you should become leaders, my brothers, for you know that he who teaches will be judged with greater strictness. Uh, so he was furious that he could see their hollow, you know, hollow holiness. He could see their insecurities and their false attitudes. And in turn, they were leading other people away uh, from God's law. So although these traditions that they had set up in place were aimed at honoring God and were perhaps new, at one time they were you know, legitimate um, principles and extensions of, of God's biblical principles, Jesus now identifies the Pharisees and scribes with the fulfillment of this biblical prophecy, and in doing so, they lose the authority of the scriptures, don't they? That they were claiming to uphold. These people have a, an outward confession of, of devotion to God, but inside they are simply dead. There is no true internal life in them that is communing with God. 
when they worshipped, they were far more concerned with whether um, they and others around them were doing and following the set procedures and traditions for their worship. In their proud hearts, they demonstrate that they think that their refined and their own established traditions are in some way superior to God's law. So Jesus criticizes their um, imitation of holiness, and he uses this passage in Isaiah 29 to characterize these religious leaders as hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites. In this passage, which they would have known very well, they were experts in the law, Isaiah is proclaiming a judgment upon Jerusalem because of the way that the people of Jerusalem were trying to control God and were trying to um, manipulate him through their false worship. So the fear of and the desire to be respected by men had superseded their devotion to the Lord. And then the second part of his rebuke, it gets even worse, doesn't it? It's even more serious because the Pharisees have been, um, even if they've been earnest in their intentions to uphold the law with these oral laws, they had um, rejected the simple command to look after your parents, to look after uh, those closest to you. Jesus uses the example of how uh, rabbinic law neglected the duty of one's um, care for their parents, and instead that money should be allocated to the temple, um, which you can kind of see is, is, is honorable, but to the, the, the sake of your parents, it's pretty dishonorable. And there was no additional laws with what you could do with the rest of your money. You could keep the rest of your money so long as it, um, some of it went to the temple. And that's how much God's law had been misrepresented by these additional commandments that they put on people. It was permissible, according to their traditions, to withhold one's duty of care, even for their own elderly parents, in the name of donating money to the temple. Like the fundamental summary of the law that Jesus gave to love God and to love others had been neglected, hadn't it? It had been so uh, distorted by these other things. So it was these attitudes and these distortion of God's perfect law that defiled people. That's what actually made people defiled and unclean when they followed these other things uh, that weren't, you know, misleading. They weren't um, true representations of what God was wanting. That's what actually made people dirty and stained before God. Their insistence on upholding these cultural and religious standards made a mockery of God's perfect law that had given them a true and a good way for them to live in relationship with God and with other people. So moving on down to verses 14 to 23. When Jesus gathers the people back to him, he explains that it's actually what lies in your heart. That is what truly defiles a person. What's going on inside, that's really what shows whether you are clean before God or you're defiled. So what does it mean to be defiled? I don't think we can't use that term anymore, do we? But it comes from the idea of being cut off from God's presence because we are unclean, we are dirty and not able to come before his perfect white-hot holiness. To do so, if we try to, would equal our destruction, wouldn't it? Because God cannot mix with things that are bloodied by sin. He cannot come near to us because we are unclean and defiled. So it's actually what's going on in our hearts not what comes out of us, not what goes you know, out of a per- into a person, but what comes out of us is ugly. And this defilement that we all share, as, as it explains, is manifesting itself in things like evil thoughts and sexual immorality, theft and murder, adultery and pride and so on. This is the real reason why we cannot stand before a holy God. Not because our hands are, are, are dirty, but because we have a, a, you know, a dirt, a disease far greater than that. And the bigger your God is, 
the more you start to realize that he is ruling with sovereign purpose over this whole world and that he is infinitely holy and providentially sustaining everything, the more you start to realize that our defilement is actually a serious issue. That's a serious problem. A holy and magnificent God kind of wakes us up from messing around with sin, doesn't it? So what do we make of these traditions? Before we go ahead and throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, you know, let's just take away all the traditions we have um, and perhaps these unspoken you know, commandments that we oppose upon ourselves, we have to kind of look at what are traditions doing? So in, tradition, in Jesus' time, uh, like today, these, these traditions, these kind of practices, were meant to serve as a way of giving us a truly you know, vivified soul, a soul that is in communion with God and delighting to, to love him and to serve others. But instead, it deceived the Pharisees, didn't it? It turned them into cold, law-bound machines. And traditions can help us. Traditions um, hold value when they lead the Christian into further devotion to God. You know, the, the church, we have, we have hymns and we have songs and patterns of worship and, and things that we like to do and devotional practices that can be used as genuinely effective ways of deepening our relationship with God and bringing us into true worship of God. And so we need not throw out all tradition. I think that's unavoidable, basically. We all have these traditions that we put upon ourselves. But traditions can also become crystallized into just mere archaic forms, can't they? They can just provoke sentimental feelings that, well, you know, this is the way we've always done it. And so it kind of reassures you that something therapeutic is going on rather than actually allowing you to, to you know, worship God in a true way. In the 16th century, uh, one of the uh, most prestigious doctors in England was a man named Thomas Lineker. And he was fluent in Greek and Latin. He was very intelligent. Um, and he cared for some of the most powerful men in the country. He cared for uh, Cardinal Wolsey, Erasmus, and King Henry VIII. You know, with the six wives and the big belly, you should at least know King Henry VIII. Um, that would be hard to be a doctor for King Henry VIII. <laughs> he has some serious medical issues. Um, and he would go on to start uh, the Royal College um, of London of, of Physicians. And that continues to be a very uh, prestigious medical institution. But at the age of 60, he decided to be done with medical uh, practice, and he became a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And for the last four years of his ministry, uh, he experienced the full force of the Protestant Reformation coming into England. And it was in this context that he began reading the Greek New Testament for the first time. And he had access to that because his friend Erasmus was the man that trans translated the New Testament. Whereas before, he had always read uh, the Mass in Latin and you know, the, the, the papal bulls and the, the letters from the bishops and the popes. For the very first time, he was now reading the Gospels and the, the epistles of Peter and Mark and John. And he came to this conclusion. He said, for the first time after reading this, he concluded, either this is not the gospel, or we are not Christians. And I share that not to criticize a particular you know, traditions, a particular church's tradition, but simply to make the point that regardless of our church backgrounds, and regardless of the cultures and the moral preferences that we put upon ourselves that sway us, we're all Christians, and that means we must not forget the power and the purity of the gospel. 
It's getting the gospel right that really frees us from being legalistic and brings us to Christ himself. So what is our response today? Um, I think we'd perhaps be a little bit, um, maybe even naive, to stop here and say, okay, we'll summarize by saying we shouldn't have these unnecessary commands upon us and, uh, like the Pharisees did because Jesus taught us that actually what is on, you know, what's going on inside, that's what really matters. And that's what makes us clean before God. Uh, this is all you know, completely true. This is very true. Jesus is showing us that we need a heart that's inclined to him by God's grace uh, to live in holiness, to live in godliness. But I do think what Jesus is doing here is actually far more intricate than that. It's far more deep than what he's um, showing us on the surface. I think he's showing us the validity and the, the use of the law for us today and presenting himself as the solution to our failure to keep the law. Now, when we say the law... Um, Christians often struggle to think about the law, don't we? We don't really know sometimes where we stand with the law, and we think, well, we're, we're under grace now. We're under grace, the covenant of grace, so the law kind of may still apply to us, may still be relevant, but we're under grace, and it's kind of new, new rules, you know, new uh, parameters to keep. But we kind of forget that a huge portion of the whole uh, Bible is law. You know, the first five books of, the, of Moses are law, but also the Sermon on the Mount is law, and the book of James is, is all law. And I think we tend to love books like Romans and Galatians, don't we? Because they, they are preachable and easy to set out in you know, short, concise fashion uh, the dangers of being legalistic. But there are still huge portions of scripture and books in the Bible that are maybe less uh, preachable and longer that still um, make the point that the law is still in our lives. The law is still um, having a bearing on how we should live in the Christian life. So just to kind of break it down for us, historically the, the church has divided the law into three categories and then defined uh, the main different uses of the law that we have today. So those three categories, we have the, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral law. So the ceremonial law relates to the uh, specific laws about Israel's worship. And we as Christians now see that as being fulfilled in Jesus, as being our great high priest. Uh, he meant that his death and resurrection means we don't have to sacrifice any animals anymore uh, and do those same ritual practices. I think our, you know, our church would be pretty, pretty dirty if we had animals coming in and we say, okay, you're next, we'll, we'll kill you off. Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus uh, made that, that complete by his death and resurrection. Then they had the civil law, and this is the, the law specifically related to Israel at their specific you know, geographical and political point in time. It was how Israel would live and, and work and um, you know, be amongst these other pagan neighbors. And the last part of the law is the moral law. And these are the commandments which reveal to us the nature and the will of God, what God is like. And out of that, knowing who God is, the moral law teaches us how we should then live, how we should live in light of uh, who our God is and who we worship and how he has shown us to live in love and service to other people. And I think that is what is still uh, relevant to us today. That is still applicable to us. So then that brings us to different, the uses of the law. So there's... Three, uh, three categories, and we still have the moral law today. And then we have the threefold use of the law. So the first use of the law is to show us um, it's a mirror. It's reflecting to us the, uh, the way in which God is perfectly righteous and we are not. It shows us that he is pure and holy and we are not, and our, our sh sinful shortcomings keep us away from God. Augustine said 
that the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and we're becoming wearied by our weakness, our failure to do it, to look to God and ask for his grace to help us. So the first use of the law makes us aware of our sin and our need for Christ. The second use of the law is for civil purposes. Um, we as a, a Western society have been, have been brought up on biblical law and practices, haven't we? A lot of our laws are, are based on biblical morality. And so when that's matched with governments that enforce those laws, we can try to promote a society that flourishes and, and isn't um, you know, descending into evil because of the law that God has given us. And the last use of the law is to serve as a guide for the Christians, uh, to serve as a guide for those that have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and now live in relationship with God the Father through Jesus. So when we become Christians, the law isn't binding upon us, it isn't weighing us down, but through the Spirit's work, we now have the ability to, to keep the law, not perfectly, uh, but to, to live in godliness, and God desires us to be holy. You know, Jesus makes us positionally holy before God by his death and resurrection, but the work of sanctification, the work of uh, living a godly, holy life is still, is still valid for us, and that's where the law you know, serves as that guide, and we can only do that through Jesus and through the Spirit's working in us, not through our own efforts. So we can still live godly lives, even if they're not perfect. So let's bring ourselves back to the passage and take another look at why Jesus might have quoted from Isaiah 29. He was using this, I think, to get his point across. I think this is really kind of key that he was trying to um, tell the Pharisees what's really going on here. And if you were to flick across to that chapter in Isaiah 29 and read on, you would see that he was not only criticizing uh, the Pharisees, but he was identifying himself with the solution um, of the problem of legalism and false worship. So in Isaiah, it goes on to say that God will do wonderful things again with his people. And God describes himself as being a potter, and we are the clay. And he will work, you know, remake us in his own image and make something beautiful out of us. Out of this uh, gloom and darkness, the blind eye shall see, and they will recognize the Holy One of Israel. And despite unbelief and false worship and cold hearts that they were dealing with, um, God will transform society. And we see that having been fulfilled, at least partially, of course, through Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus. It's through Jesus that justice can be established and law-abiding can be possible with fresh joy. It's not a burden to do what God asks of us, but it's a joy because Jesus has done it perfectly for us already. Um, and he, he perfectly fulfills the law, doesn't he? He perfectly obeys it and does everything it says to do and you know, doesn't do everything it says not to do. And he does so in a way that is life-giving. It's, it's a way that's giving a joy and life to us, and it doesn't leave him you know, hard and bitter and legalistic like the Pharisees were. He kept it perfectly and did it in such joyful you know, devotion to God that he's given us a model. Um, so now we are no longer under the curse of the law, are we? We're no longer under uh, its obligations. But we do have the power uh, by the Spirit to genuinely try to be capable of obeying the law. So, as we close today, let us consider what Jesus is offering us today. He is offering us the chance to be clean again. At the core of our being, our nature has been so um, corrupted by sin, so defiled that our moral conscience and our actions 
are just you know, polluted and, and defiled by sin. And that makes us everyday sinners in need of an everyday gospel, doesn't it? Just like the leper that was cast out of society uh, because of his contagious condition, so too are we separated from God by our sin. We cannot come near to him and no amount of law-keeping will ever bring us uh, into right relationship with God. But just as Jesus went to the leper, he went to the leper and stood among those that were sick and defiled and healed them. He did the same thing for us too on the cross. Jesus makes our law-keeping now beautiful and glorifying to God because he fulfilled it and he gave us a way to genuinely love and serve those around us. In Christ, the Father now delights to see us walking in holiness, walking in godliness, uh, because he has redeemed us and given us a new motivation, a new perspective to how we should live. Not because we are wanting to be saved, because we've already been saved. Um, so as we close, I think C.S. Lewis highlighted that really well. He said, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. Not doing these things in order to be saved, but because we have already begun to be saved. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. Amen. Yeah, that's a powerful challenge. Uh, you know, as, as we uh, leave today, I, I want to just, as Josh was sharing, I was thinking of the passage in Matthew where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, um, you, you even tithe one-tenth of your spices that, sh- that you like, get from your garden. And, and, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law of justice and of mercy. And, and I'm thinking about that and like, you know, I mean, the last thing that we want you to do in response to this message is when you're in your garden this year to bring in a tenth of your spices. We don't want your dill and your sage and your rosemary. You, you can keep that. Uh, but let's, let's pursue the heart of God. Right? I mean, that's really what this challenge is about. If we want to honor God, and, and, it's, and I love that, what Josh shared at the end there. It's not, it's not about to position ourselves to be in God's favor. It's because he's already favored us. It's because he's already chosen us. It's because he's already redeemed us. Now, in response to what Jesus did, like John says in, in 1 John 4, because he loved us first, we can now love him so let's, let's close with just that, that heart of, God, show me your heart. Give me your heart. Give me the, a burden for the things that you care about. Change me. Uh, like, like David said, create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. If we can pray that um, from our hearts, I believe that God will, will honor that this morning. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to not only care about our salvation and our, our eternal destiny, but even about the way that, that we live, that, that you want us to conform to your likeness and to your image. And so you've given us guidelines. You've given us direction. You've given us things that, that make us um, more like you and that lead us more into the direction that you would want us to live. So, Lord, we pray that out of a response of what you've done for us, out of the love that you've demonstrated to us, out of the redemption that you've given us, Lord, that, that our hearts would be transformed uh, into your likeness. God, that we would desire the things that you desire. Lord, that our hearts would, would be purified and, and cleansed uh, 
Lord, from all unrighteousness and that we would pursue the things uh, that, that you would have for our lives. So, Lord, we, we give you our hearts today. God, we say search us and know us and show us the areas in our heart that, that still need some work. And, Lord, as we repent of that sinfulness and, and we give that to you because you took care of it on the cross, Lord, I pray that, that our actions and our obedience would be transformative as well. God, we just we thank you for the work of your son on the cross. And Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit inside of us as you shape us and mold us into the people that you want us to be. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. We love you. See you next week.